Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. We are glad to be back with you this morning, this new year, talking to you about cooperatives and the value of cooperatives into the United States and into the world. You know, cooperatives are any business that you can think of. Any business that that can exist in the U.S. can be a cooperative. It just depends on the ownership. If the business is owned by the employees, then it's a worker cooperative. That's the definition of a worker cooperative is that the employees own the business and they control the business. If the business is owned by the consumer, the people that use the products or services, then it's called a consumer cooperative. And examples of that, particularly that most people know about, are credit unions or housing cooperatives, particularly in New York, uh, Chicago, Michigan, D.C., have a lot of housing cooperatives, but throughout the U.S., there are credit unions, and the credit unions are owned by the people that use it. The people that use it that are members of the credit union, they own the credit union, they vote for the directors, the board of directors, and the board of directors are the one that governs the credit union. So those are the two largest types of co-ops, and there are other co-ops, particular farmers belong to Co-ops, when they buy products together, they buy these products. They're called purchasing co-ops. And when they sell their products together, they're called marketing co-ops. So there are a lot of different forms of co-ops, but those are the major ones that, that exist. And so there was research done by the University of Wisconsin through a grant by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And last week we had Bruce Reynolds in from the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, talking about how the U.S. Department of Agriculture has been involved with co-ops for since the 1920s. And this research found that there's nearly 30,000 U.S. cooperatives operating in 73,000 places of business throughout the U.S. These cooperatives own $3 trillion in assets and generate $500 billion in revenue and $25 billion in wages. And, you know, if you, if you look at, um, if you extrapolate, this sample, this is the sample that they that they looked at. Then the study estimates that cooperatives account for nearly $654 billion in revenue and 2 million jobs, about $75 billion in wages and benefits. You know, these wages and benefits, one of the things that we've talked about is that when you are a member of a cooperative, you own the business, and if there are profits, then those profits, at least portions of those profits, can be given back to the members. So if you're in a worker cooperative, we had Equal Exchange, uh, a worker cooperative, 150 employees, 117 of those employees owned the business. Well, when those worker uh, cooperatives, when that cooperative, Equal Exchange, has profit, I think they said uh, on the program that 50% of the profit went back to the employees. 
and the other 50% stayed in the business to grow the business. So who decides that? Well, the board of directors decided, and the, again, the board of directors is voted on and put into office by the members. And I don't remember the numbers, but the majority of the board of directors at Eco Exchange were members. They had three outside board of directors, but the majority of them were members. So you get member controlled, you get if there is a profit, the money comes back to the uh, owners and the owners are the employees for worker cooperative. So you build wealth in, in the masses. I never believed that the, the motto that we were going to get, we African-Americans were, in, were going to get 40 acres and a mule. I never believed that anybody that had would just give unless the federal government stepped in and gave money, particularly when they were developing the West. So that never happened. It was a promise that never happened. But this cooperative is a way that people, everyday people can come together and start a business. You know, have a better chance of success once people learn how to work together have a much better chance of success because you have people coming together, working together with different skills and talents to grow the business. If you have any questions, uh, you can call in at 1-800-450-7876. If you have any questions or comments today, you can call in. So, you know, you get this these different cooperatives, and this research says they have a footprint, a fairly large footprint in the U.S., and when we had the president of the International Cooperative Alliance on the program, Dame Pauline Green said, it's of the 7 billion people that are in the world today, 1 billion of those people belong to cooperatives. Let me get my numbers straight here. Of the 7 billion people that are in the world today, about 1 billion of them belong to cooperatives, and so therefore the co-ops have a huge impact around the world. And she also said, this is Dame Pauline Green, she said that cooperatives gives people the ability to come out of poverty with dignity. You know, coming out of poverty with dignity because they work themselves out of poverty. They find ways through the cooperative, they get the knowledge that they need to get the wealth to come out of, out of poverty. So cooperatives is one of the is a is a business model that I have come to love and respect because it gives everyday people the tools that they need to run a business. And I believe it was Papa Sin from Senegal who was on the program that said that when he talked to farmers, the biggest thing that they said that they got from be, becoming a cooperative around the world and this was in Ghana or Senegal he was talking about, he said that the farmers said that they, before they became a member of the cooperative, they could not feed their family for the year. They could not feed their family. They did not make enough. So what what happens after they became a co-op and involved in the cooperative, they, the cooperative members trained each other, and they got training from outside of the cooperative to know how to plant better, how to take care of the soil better, how to get better fertilizer or not use fertilizer to do organic farming. So they learned how to, and they also got better seed. 
So by getting better seeds and learning how to farm better, they got better crops. And then by being in a cooperative, they could pool their crops together, sell their crops together, market their crops together so that they get a better price such that they made more money. And uh, Papa Sim said that he was walking down the street. He was one co-op member was on one side and the non-co-op member was on the other side. And you could tell the difference in the products that you could look at them and see the cooperative member's product was strong and sturdy. And the member, the person that farmer was not a member of the co-op, they were weak. Um, so the co-op has a lot of benefits and those benefits around the world. So we were hoping to have uh, someone from the University of Wisconsin on today, and I don't know what has happened, but we're hoping that they're okay to talk about this research that they did. And if they don't come on today, we'll try to get them on another time because they looked at farm supply and marketing co-ops, grocery co-ops, uh, arts co-ops. They looked at different kinds of um, social and public service co-ops, whether they're housing or education, transportation, health care, child care. They looked at financial cooperatives like credit unions and farm credits and mutual insurance, uh, cooperative financing to, to start co-ops and so forth. And then there are utilities, rural electric, we've had them on, telephone and water cooperatives. So the rural electric, for instance, we found out from the rural electrics that 50% of the households in the U.S., or they said the meters, were in the rural electrics, and about 80% of the land mass of the U.S. was covered by these rural electrics. And one of the interesting things, like in the Southern Maryland, there's a rural electric, and in Fairfax, rural electrics. But those are not, those are not rural communities anymore. The, the urban communities have, have spread out to the suburbs and so forth and such that rural America in these areas around major cities are urban now, but they're still being supplied by the rural electric cooperatives. So that we, we find a lot of work that's going on rural America, and that's what uh, Bruce Reynolds was talking to us about from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They're in the rural division of the government, that they are doing <clears throat> grants and research about rural America, knowing that one day these, a, lot, a lot of these places that are rural now will not be rural in the future. So cooperatives have played a huge part and are playing a huge part in the U.S. economy, as shown by this research by the University of Wisconsin Center of economics, of cooperatives, and they played a huge part in the world, a much larger part when you think of one-seventh of the people of around the world are members of cooperatives in one way or another, particularly, I think they, Dame Pauline Green that said that there was, it was either 60,000 or 600,000 farmers in India alone were in cooperatives. The numbers are mind-boggling, the number of people that are in cooperatives around the world in these developing countries, learning, working together, getting the knowledge that they need, uh, which reminds me of a plaque that I saw at Greenbelt Homes. Greenbelt is, Maryland is right outside of the district when it 
Greenbelt Home was built in the 1930s and 40s, it was rural America. They said it was a long way from D.C. It was far, far, far away. But right now, it's right just where um, 495 and 295 intersect is where Greenbelt is. And so it is no longer rural America. It's very much urban. But that 1,600-unit housing cooperative had a plaque that said, cooperatives gives people the tools that they need to control their destiny. Cooperatives gives people the tools they need to control their destiny. Such That's what everybody that's on the program tells me all around the world, that people get the tools. The farmers get tools that they need to grow better crops. They get the tools that they need to sell the crops, get a better profit, better uh, sales price, such that, that they can feed their family for the whole year. That was the results of being in a cooperative. They went from not being able to supply or provide for their families to having the opportunity to provide for their families and have savings, creating wealth. It could be on a small scale, but nevertheless, creating wealth where before they could not even create the wealth. Listen, we'll be right back. If you want to call in, please call in at 1-800-450-7876. Please don't touch that dial. We'll be right back talking about cooperatives. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. In the first segment, we talked about some of the results of the research that was done by the University of Wisconsin Center of Cooperatives. And we have Ms. Ann Reynolds from the Center of Cooperatives. Good morning, Ann. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm great, too. Glad you made it on. Yes, thanks. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got involved in cooperatives? Well, you know, to tell you the truth, I've known about cooperatives all my life. Uh, Madison, where I grew up, uh, has a lot of co-ops. We think we have about 75 here. But I also was um, lucky enough to have a father that was involved in helping to start a bunch of the cooperatives that are in Madison now and also worked with uh, quite a few of the agricultural cooperatives in in our state. So, I heard co-op talk around the dinner table, and um, that was a great way to get started. Uh, I really wish I could have had that experience again. I did not find about a co-op until about 20 years ago when I started managing property, uh, housing co-ops, and I have found that I really love this model. We have a gentleman by the name of Ron on. Ron, could you? Good afternoon. Good morning. Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I was calling in because I... I've become an avid listener of your show since you've been on the airways. Thank you. And I have started developing my business model for my nonprofit as a purchasing cooperative. So I did a little research on black cooperatives in the United States, and there's a very interesting piece that was put together by Dr. Jessica Garden from the um, uh, city University of New York that has done a historical overview on cooperatives, and it's quite interesting that cooperatives go all the way back to W.D. Du Bois in 1865, the Chesapeake Bay Moraine Railway Cooperative, Black Cooperative Villages of 1880s, and this is such a, a, a rich history 
I think that uh, maybe you might consider doing uh, uh, some interviews with some of the uh, members of these cooperatives that were established because they're still around today. You have mutual insurance companies, uh, mercantile cooperatives. All of these were cooperatives that were established in the 1800s and the early 1900s. The uh, W.D.B. Boys created the Negro Cooperative Guild. 1919, the Citizen Cooperative of Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, it seems that the cooperative model became the main vehicle which African Americans in this country were able to, uh, as they said, uh, zip up their own bootstraps. So I, I think it's something that needs to be taught in our schools as a form of teacher. Ron, I, I totally agree with really you. I totally agree with you, and that's what we're trying to do on this program is to get that word out. Now, I haven't had Miss Gordon on the program. I want to reach out to her. I have met her. I did have a gentleman by the name of David Thompson on who's writing another book about the history, the civil rights movement, and, uh, the, and the impact that co-ops have had on the civil rights movement, going back to Du Bois and Marcus Garvey and um, a number of everybody, Rosa Parks. So there's a, you're absolutely correct. And so what I would like to do now, if I could, thank you thank you for bringing that on, and I want to get back with Ann, and who no has problem. been doing the research. Have a blessed day. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for calling, sir. Ann, as, as you talk, have you come across any of those co-ops in your research? Definitely. And um, I also uh, have known Jessica for many years, um, really value her as a colleague, and uh, included chapters from her book in my uh, class that I teach to undergraduates here at the University of Wisconsin. I think it's a incredibly rich history and really demonstrates that, uh, as the gentleman uh, said, that cooperatives uh, have appealed to people uh, for um, the last century as an alternative um, model that's uh, locally based, locally controlled, and I think it's really exciting to um, have some of this uh, research uh, being, um, you know, circulated so that we can use it in our classrooms. It's a um, great contribution, and and it's and it's as he as he mentioned, it's still it's a living history because um, we are seeing cooperatives being thought about in communities all over the United States that I think really weren't aware of them in the past or had lost that history or that connection to cooperative uh, models, and so it's very exciting to see this. Um, things happening um, all over the country, uh, new young people getting involved and getting excited about uh, how can we build organizations that will stay local, provide local jobs, and um, uh, be controlled by local people to serve their needs. You know, I like what he said also, and Ron, I thank you for calling in, because you said uh, get people to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, and I put the word own in there. And, that, again, that's what I like about this. There's no handout. It's people uh, getting pushing themselves up a hand up, helping each other, um, which, again, is why people can come out of poverty with dignity. And, again, that's what Dame Pauline Green had talked about, the president of the International Cooperative Alliance. So can you, let's go back to this research that you're doing. And uh, I really, it would have been nice if I could have had those conversations around the the dinner table as a child growing up, knowing about these co-ops uh, that your father provided. So you have a rich his- history. 
So t can you tell us a little bit about this, this research that you all did? How did you get started? What did you do? <laughs> well, you know, it. Um, I guess one of the main reasons this research on trying to take a look at um, how many co-ops were there in the country, what is their economic impact, um, it really came from policymakers who were interested in um, knowing the effect of co-ops on the economy and knowing that it, until we quantified that, we were sort of at a disadvantage in policy conversations. And uh, cooperatives, like any form of business, rely on good regulations and um, good tax policies in order to be successful, in addition to all of the kind of human pieces um, uh, of, of running a business. So, collecting, so we were asked um, by the National Co-op Business Association to sort of help with some thinking about how a census of cooperatives might take place. And then um, they advocated, along with others, uh, for some funding, which eventually was um, approved by Congress and the U.S. Department of Agriculture then um, helped to uh, fund this study, which was which asked us the University of Wisconsin Center for Cooperatives, to take a look at co-ops across the country, co-ops of all types, not just agriculture, and then um, apply some sort of standard economic analysis so that we could understand the impacts of these um, businesses beyond just the revenue and wages, but, you know, what is kind of the um, total impact that they might be having on the economy. So it was the first time that a uh, study like this has taken place, and we were really um, pleased to that, that, you know, the results really uncovered something fairly significant. Yeah, because I read uh, earlier in the first segment that the study estimated that cooperatives account for nearly $654 billion in revenue. I'm reading from right. your executive summary. Yeah. Two million jobs, seventy-five billion in wages and benefits paid, and a total of one hundred thirty-three point five billion in value-added income. Right, so billion that, dollars. Okay, that, that's very. It is significant. I mean, of course, it's a relatively small part of the economy, but um, you know, when you're when you're looking at uh, those kinds of numbers, you, you do realize that taken together, cooperatives are very significant. And, um, and of course, some, in some sectors, they're um, more significant than others. Uh, in agriculture, particularly, cooperatives um, supply most of the milk, uh, fresh milk, to, um, that we, we all drink and um, the cheese and butter that we eat. Um, and, um, you know, then, of course, in certain communities, um, cooperatives are very significant. So. You know, I, I, we've got to take another break, and I want to just tell anybody out there, like Ron, if you want to, if you have a question or comment, please call in at 1-800-450-7876, because the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program to get the word out so people would know about cooperatives and maybe start more, find out about more as Ron has done and doing his research, starting his company, so that the impact would be even greater and that we uh, can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We'll be right back. <laughs> 
1450 WOL. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks with Everything Cooperative. Today we have Ms. Ann Reynolds from the University of Wisconsin Center of Co for Cooperatives on the uh, radio program with us talking about the research that was uh, done by, funded by the U.S. government. I did not know, Ann, that Congress had approved that money. I thought it just came out of the budget of the Department of Agriculture. So how did that happen? Well, it was a special, um, um, you know, part of the uh, budget. And uh, I, think it, I think it happened because, you know, of good advocacy and um, support from the co-op community to um, saying, you know, we really need to have this census. One of our... Um, challenges with co-op research is that uh, business census, that uh, censuses of business that is done by the U.S. Census uh, does not um, particularly um, kind of uh, divide out cooperatives. So business owners and um, people that are filling out the census forms do not, are not asked, are you a co-op? And so it is difficult to uh, gain an understanding of cooperatives um, for researchers, and so this, I think this was recognized, and the appropriation was made, and uh, was very significant, so um, we were really glad to have a chance to participate in it. What year did you uh, start and complete the research? The study was released in 2009, and I think we started in 2007. So we were uh, co we collected information. Some 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 uh, parts of the co-op movement, like credit unions, are regulated, and so they collect uh, information on an annual basis that we used in our study. And then we also then did direct surveys of a lot of other types of co-ops, uh, grocery co-ops, purchasing co-ops, which are sort of business to business co-ops. Um, Many of the other uh, sectors we did direct surveys for, which was uh, costly and time-consuming, and um, and yet we felt like we it yielded good results. I know I again came out of the housing co-ops, and during that time we were trying to help you guys get those surveys completed, and it was difficult. It and, was yes, and I, it, it's also interesting that some co-ops don't want their information to be known, and I don't quite understand that. I, still don't and it happens in the housing co-op world they work kind of kind of secretive of what they're doing and who's members and all of that um so i would love to be able to one day to find out how many housing co-ops we have in the u.s and how, how fast or slow it's growing because that's one of my goals to do is to create how uh housing co-ops particularly affordable housing co-ops um to develop them my two go ahead i'm sorry I was just going to say I, I I agree. You know the the be beginning of a lot of those um, initiatives. It, it starts with having good data and really understanding. You know what is the um, scope of that uh, industry. We we know that affordable housing cooperatives have grown, but it's kind of a fragmented group. They don't all belong to the same associations and. Um, I think it would be tremendously useful to have that data. Yeah, because most of HUD's monies goes toward apartments and to create affordable housing. Uh, it it kind of looks like now in the last five years, most if not all of their funding goes toward apartment buildings. And I get that 
um, who owns those apartment buildings normally are not the uh, the, the the people in, the, in right. the, that don't have money. People that don't have money don't own apartment buildings, but people that don't have money can be a owner of an affordable co-op and they can make money. Uh, they can build wealth. It's always very, very small, but it's much better than being in an apartment building because you, you don't get any returns off being in an apartment building. So I really advocate for HUD putting more of their money in co-ops, but so far that ha we haven't been able to get that accomplished in the last five or ten years I've been actively involved in this. So um, what, what happens next with the, uh, with the research? Are you all doing anything else, or is that just finished well, we uh, we definitely are working on, on next steps, and we're doing that, um, you know, in concert with other partners. Um, and um, we're excited that uh, we're making some real progress in um, trying to gather some of this information that already exists through the census. And so I think a lot. So a lot of our energy has been put into. Um, working with the U.S. Census to understand um, how we can extract information about cooperatives from the census, and then also with some other uh, databases like um, uh, Dun and Bradstreet type of information. So there are also private data sources that collect a lot of information on businesses, and we're working on on um, some extracting information from them. And the reason that this is important is because, as you mentioned, it's really hard to get businesses to complete surveys. They're surveyed sometimes to death. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've been focusing our energies on trying to get information on co-ops that's already out there from existing databases and of course the US census is the um, place where a lot of information is collected on businesses and our goal is to um, as I mentioned to try to get a um, um, uh, a place in the in the business census that the US census does um, where people would check off, yes, we're a cooperative, they would self-identify, and then researchers could use that. Um, but even without that happening, and it is kind of a long process to make a change in any of the census reports, we're excited that um, we're making progress on identifying cooperatives within those um, bodies of data. And we're also working with other researchers around the country to um, understand what they're looking for and help make that available to them. So in addition to the report that we've been talking about, which was done, done in 2009, we're, we're, and, 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 um, we're, and we're working to make, and we do make that data available, we're working to um, um, bring some of these other sources to researchers. And I guess the reason that that's important is because around the country, um, there's a lot of business schools and there's a lot of um, economists and they don't do a lot of research in co-ops. And we know that one of the reasons that they don't 
write about co-ops and help to advocate for the um, limited equity housing co-ops that you work with is because it's very hard to get information about these organizations. And so if we want to have more um, interest from um, faculty and then more interest from students and we want to have um, papers written and we want to be able to really um, see this movement grow, we need to make it a little bit easier for researchers to understand, you know, what's going on with co-ops and why are they important and how do they uh, treat their employees and how do they um, make a difference in their communities? How do they um, uh, what what is the difference between um, a housing cooperative and a um, apartment building that's owned by a landlord? Um, these are huge questions, and they're not easy to answer um, without good data. Well, you know, the good data is, is, is what's needed. Now, what what can I do? What can the people in this audience do? What can we, how can we get together? To, let's take the one of the census. Because to me, the, getting the, I talked earlier about we couldn't get the information about the who or housing costs, but it seemed like if even in the, in the, category when they say for an individual, where do you live? If it was also a, a slot for them to say, I live in a co-op, uh, that would be very, very helpful, but also the business side of it too, of what kind of business is it, uh, put it where you can check off co-op. Um, what can we do to get that to happen? That, to me, would be tremendous help. <laughs> okay. I know you know it would be tremendous help, but that would be tremendous help in getting the data so we could do the research to tell the story about how great co-ops are. What can I do? Yeah, the, uh, great question. Uh, the National Co-op Business Association, uh, ncba.coop, is involved in helping to advocate for this. And so um, I think that if they heard from people that were interested in this issue, um, that would be terribly useful for them as they go forward with um, uh, working with the regulators, the people at Census, and others um, to advocate for this. So um, NCBA is an organization that includes cooperatives of all types, and I think um, um, that would be probably one place to start. Okay, Michael Bell has been on the program. He's now the executive director of NCBA.coop. He was on a year ago, October, when we first got started. Um, and he had the distinct privilege of talking about your world. Uh, both of his parents were in um, credit unions. So he said at, at the age of 11, he could help people fill out uh, loan applications. He grew up in a co-op where I told him he was a co-op baby. So he went way back. So yeah, okay, so we could go to NCBA. Is there any? Is Liz uh, Bailey involved in this at all? I think there's a lot of people that that may get involved in it as it as as it gains some traction. And um, to somebody like uh, Liz Bailey, or or you know, any any of the housing organizations or the credit union organizations or. Um, Groups that um, anybody in your audience belongs to, um, if they can, if they can make those organizations aware of this or the individuals that they know, I think it would be um, 
really useful. We do need to uh, gather some significant support in order to make this happen. Okay, so that's one of the things I'm going to put on my to-do list for 20, <laughs> 2015 is to advocate for the census. When is the next census going to be? You know, I'm not really sure. I know that um, uh, I, I've heard that it does take can take several years for changes to the census to make their way through the process, and I'm not sure where we are in that um, kind of time frame. I think we're just at the beginning of it. My understanding is that the U.S. business census is every five years, okay. but I'm not sure when the next one is. I just want to see how much time we have to, to make this change. <laughs> yeah, okay. exactly. So I'm real clear that we need the information. We've got to get the research so we can get the information. Getting the data through the census and so forth would be very, very helpful because it is a great story, this people pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, uh, people getting businesses together uh, to help solve their own community problems. Um, Papa Sin from Senegal, that's what he said, that uh, co-ops are – created to solve a community problem. If there's no community problem, there's no need for a co-op. Um, that was his quote. So so that there's plenty of benefit. And the National Cooperative Bank was created to help people in um, low economic communities. So the African-American community, which I'm a part of and grew up in, most of those communities are low economic communities. So this, this whole sense of co-op, Working, getting these businesses together to solve community problems is why I advocate so much for this. But it's whatever low economic family community it might be, whether it's Wisconsin farmers or Illinois farmers or whomever, this co-op can really help. When we've got to take another break, and and this this hour goes by so much. So I have so many questions for you, but we only have fifteen more minutes after the break. So we'll come back and try to get to. Uh, some, some of these questions answered. We'll be right back. News updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com. Information is power, and that's why the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program to give you the information that you need to help start a business with a group of people, Start a cooperative to help solve your community problems. Start a business to help create wealth for the individuals that may be members and owners of that business. So I want to change a little bit and to talk about Madison, Wisconsin. You said you grew up in Madison, about 75 co-ops. What is Madison doing now to create more co-ops? Well, thanks for the question. I um you know, I'm a great believer that we need data and um, we need research and we need students and uh, people of all um, ages to understand what co-ops are about. But we also need to be there when a group of people get together and think about starting a co-op. And that group of people, it's kind of like starting any business. They need um help with business planning, they need to be thinking about their finances, they need good legal advice, uh, they need to be able to do good marketing and market analysis. So um, in order to have a successful business, you, you do need support, and co-ops have some unique things about them. So given all of that, uh, the city of Madison has um, approved 
as part of its um, 2016 budget, total of $5 million over the next five years to fund that kind of support network for cooperatives. Right. Is that $5 million a year or $1 million for five years each year? $5 million a year uh, for five million years? $1 for each year from okay. uh, starting in 2016. So, um, and it's a it's a really significant um, amount of money, obviously, and it's a really significant opportunity to really grow our um, co-ops in Madison in many, many different ways. I should say that right now, uh, starting in January, we're putting together the program for how that money will be spent. And then the Madison City Council will need to approve that program before we're actually able to spend money in 2016. So it needs to go through one more hurdle and one more approval process. So right now um, the city is working with um, uh, the cooperative community and also the labor movement to look at how can we um, most effectively help to incubate new cooperatives with a special focus on people who have been um, left out of the job market or left out of the good job market Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And um, so we're looking at training opportunities. We're looking at really intensive incubation so that, you know, a group of people could get all of their needs met and really, um, as we've been talking about, pull themselves up from their bootstraps, um, but with good market analysis and good um, assistance so that these businesses are successful. And we want to put a structure in place that uh, won't just help people out as they're starting, but will be there as businesses, as they sort of inevitably do, hit some of those stumbling blocks along the way. Mm-hmm. Research in Quebec has shown that cooperatives actually have a better chance of continuing as businesses than other uh, very small businesses. Once they get off the ground, um, and they have with with some assistance. Um, they 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 are successful, but we do know we do want to have a support system in place, um, just as you know other entrepreneurs have support systems. We want to be able to create those networks, lots of peer to peer stuff, uh, potentially you know favorable uh, lending, but lending that really works for people and doesn't encourage them to take unnecessary risks. So those are the things that we're going to be working on in the next six months, and we're really looking forward to 2016 if uh, this all gets put together and approved. So I assume the Center for Cooperatives has a very big role in trying to figure out how you're going to spend that million dollars a year and putting that plan together? Yes, right. We're definitely involved, and um, and then um, we're also talking to the rest of the cooperative community here to get ideas and um, and then also to the, you know, other organizations that support businesses in the city um, trying to – we don't want to reinvent resources that are already here. We just want to deploy them toward this co-op um, idea. And we also want to be, you know, um, 
I don't know, initiate some, bring together new ideas from around the country on how we can um, uh, create businesses that, that, that work for, for people. And, yep. um, you know, not just in high tech. There's a lot of service industry um, jobs, and there's a lot of, um, I mean, you take construction, you take service. There's a lot of jobs that stay in communities. They're not going to be outsourced. We need to figure out, you know, can they be cooperatively owned? Can they provide living wages, benefits, those kinds of things? Well, I, I would say it a little bit different. Uh, you said can they. I, I, my belief is that any business can be a co-op, and that's how I started the program. Any business can be a co-op. The question is how can they be a co-op? Is how can they be successful as a people running them as a group as opposed to the hierarchy down, which is normal in the capitalist model? How can it be run from bottom up. Um, <laughs> okay. So you talked about peer-to-peer um, training. I have taught for 12 years, and I, I learned a, a huge lesson at Penn State where I got my master's in math of getting the, t- the students to teach each other, uh, like beginning algebra and calculus. And I found that through teaching uh, math for five years and uh, marketing for six, that when the when they taught each other, they learned better than when I taught them. That was that was a little shock to me. <laughs> but, <laughs> I know the feeling. Okay, that was a shock to my ego, but it worked. That when they were teaching each other, and when and I also had them grade each other on a daily basis. Uh, whenever any, I had them to present cases, particularly in marketing, so that they graded each other, that they paid much more attention, they they worked harder, and they learned more. And that's also why I like. When I when I go to any kind of workshop or conference on co-ops, you get people teaching each other in the hallways and the classes, and the people will pay much more attention to it. Uh, so that's another reason why I like co-ops. And this, their fifth one is education, training, and information. Is that this training takes place, and everybody's for, and people share with each other. They don't hold back information. They they give it because they want everybody to be successful. Have you found that to be the same way as your experience with co-ops? Absolutely. And it happens at every level, both on a national and regional level and then on a local level. Um, One of the kind of interesting things that some of the co-ops have done in Madison is to open up their boardroom to other co-op members. So they'll have a a night where they invite um, other board members to attend part of their their co-op board meeting. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, you just sit in the back of the room and you listen and you observe how does the chair handle things, what are the issues that are brought up, how do they work with an agenda. It's been tremendously helpful. And that was just something that, um, you know, a very low-cost way of doing that peer-to-peer training. Uh, We also have an example of um, we have a grocery store co-op, Willie Street Grocery Store, um, which has been lending uh, management and expertise and um, marketing expertise to a number of different startup co-ops in our area. Um, we have a neighborhood in Madison that recently lost its uh, last access to groceries, and it's an isolated neighborhood, very low income, and Willie Street Co-op has uh, sent staff to try to work with the neighborhood um, around potentially setting up a buying clubs, um, also even advocating for a, a grocery store there. So um, we we really agree with you that 
you know, there's nothing. Teachers can do some some piece of this, but the peer-to-peer piece of it is tremendously powerful, and that's really how co-ops have lifted themselves up by their bootstraps as a group. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the gentleman that called in earlier mentioned um, some of the organizations that were formed in the African-American community, and uh, Jessica Nemart's book is rich with those organizations. As, it's, it's almost um, it's almost kind of funny that as soon as co-ops got started, they started to form networks because they couldn't really depend on the government for support. They couldn't necessarily depend on the Chamber of Commerce in their communities for support. So they needed to work together to share information. And, um, you know, I know the African-American co-op history is rich with those organizations. Well, I'm going to do what Ron suggested and reach out to some of them to get them on the program uh, because that their their history is not known. Um, but also, it goes back. Frederick Douglass in the 1850s went to he went to Europe as a slave and he got help from cooperators over there. He came back as a freedman. Uh, so it goes it goes it goes real really far back. I, I um we only have another minute or so to go. <laughs> So how would, what would you like to say last to, to our audience about co-ops and your research? Uh, and tell me what class you teach. Oh, well, yeah. I, I guess I um, just would encourage everybody to, you know, teach each other. But it is exciting to um, uh, be, have a chance to teach undergraduates. I teach a class on cooperatives at the University of Wisconsin uh, in Madison. We're um, Always happy to expand that. If there's anybody out there that's teaching or interested in talking to high school classes or college classes about their co-ops, I would really encourage you to do that and be glad to um, supply materials or anything, any way that we can help to spread the word. We're, we have a great website. If you just Google University of Wisconsin Center for Co-ops, you'll find it. And really appreciate the chance to be on your show. Thank you, and I'd like to come up and meet you one day and maybe uh, see your class. Excellent, excellent. Hi, everybody. Uh, We have to say uh, we'll see you next Thursday. And thank you so much for being on, and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. All right. Bye. News updates on the web at wolddcnews.com.